Welcome to the C21 Podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Today we hear from actress, writer and producer Morwenna Banks about recent Sky original Funny Woman and the history of women in comedy. From Kindle Entertainment's Melanie Stokes about becoming part of Banerjee and trends in YA drama. And from Siddharth Jain, maker of Netflix India crime drama Trial by Fire. Funny Woman is a Sky comedy drama about a young woman from Blackpool, played by Gemma Arterton, who finds her comic voice in the male-dominated world of the 1960s sitcom, going from beauty queen to comedy superstar. Set during the cultural explosion of the 1960s and based on the Nick Hornby novel Funny Girl, it also stars Claire Hope Ashty, Alsha Ali and Alexa Davies and is produced by Potboiler and Rebel Park Productions in association with Sky Studios. Available to watch on Sky On Demand and now in the UK, Funny Woman was adapted by actor, writer and producer Morwenna Banks, who has written and performed in a slew of hit comedies for TV and radio since the 1990s. Now on the writing team of Apple TV Plus drama Slow Horses, she has also voiced characters in a number of hit animated series, from Peppa Pig to Monkey Dust. I spoke to Morwenna and Tulusha Jelani, commissioning editor for comedy at Sky Studios, about the importance of female-led content, how the experience of women in comedy may have changed since the 1990s, and what Tulusha looks for in a Sky original. Here's the first part of our conversation, which begins with Morwenna discussing Funny Woman. In short, it's about realising that the life you're living is not the life you want to be living. And um, Barbara's story, I think, is a really universal one, and in many ways timeless. Um, It's about a young person who feels that life has got something more to offer her and that she has something more to offer the world and the job she's doing and the environment that she grew up in. So um, she has our lead character, Barbara, played by Gemma Arterton, has a sort of a blinding flash in the first episode at the point at which she wins the Miss Blackpool Bell beauty pageant. So as the crown's sort of put on her head, she she has this sort of moment where she looks around and thinks, this is this this is it. This is my life now. And 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 literally walks, walks off the stage, puts the crown on on another contestant's head and, and walks out of her life and into a life in London. And she sets off for London, not knowing that she wants to be someone, but not quite knowing who that someone is. Um, and the background to this is that she's motivated by a love of radio and television comedy, and especially her hero is really Lucille Ball. And even though she's got no idea how to pursue that path, she's really determined to take a chance and, and, and to see what's out there for her, with hilarious consequences. <laughs> to Lucia, what made it appeal to Sky and to your audience? Oh, I mean, there's so much about it that really resonated with me personally. And I thought it had the potential to resonate with lots of people because it really is about an outsider kind of breaking into an industry. And I think there's lots of people that have experience of that nowadays. You know, from um, I was reading some of the tweets about the series as it's going out. And, you know, there are people who've grown up in the north who've made the journey to uh, the north of England and who've made the journey to London to pursue the arts or some industry or other and have felt that experience of being an outsider. And I think it's sort of amplified by the fact that it's set in the 1960s, where those journeys were harder and sort of seeing it in sharper focus, your experience is easier to process, I think. So that was super appealing. And then beyond that, I think I've worked with Morwenna before, and I knew her to be a hugely talented writer and performer. I was a big fan of Nick Hornby's writing. And I hadn't, though I hadn't worked with Pop Boiler or 
Rebel Park production companies before, just from meeting them, it just immediately felt like this would be a really trusting and honest working process and that we'd get, we'd be able to kind of form a really good show out of what we had already. And then Gemma coming on board was just the icing on the cake. You know, the, the first meeting when, when you know, we, we went into Pot Boiler and, and Talusha was there. It was so serendipitous and it was so fantastic because I because as, as Talusha said, we'd worked together in radio. And Talusha had sort of blazed her own trail, really, working in BBC Light Entertainment. And, and, I, and I'd worked with her and I always loved working with her. And I also knew that she knew where the funny was and she would always know where the funny was. And it gave me an enormous... I mean, it was fantastic to see and also to think, you know, this person is really going to understand the story we're telling here. And 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 Talusha's kind of journey to get this on screen, I think, you know, is a whole, it's a whole kind of episode. <laughs> but it was, you know, she was absolutely tenacious. And I think because she knew it, you know, I think the fact that we both worked in comedy and drama, but I think it, it meant that we sort of knew the story from the inside out and even... Certainly when I, you know, all those set in the 60s, obviously, even when I started out properly being on television in the 90s, you know, th- th- there was a lot of resistance to 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 um, it's kind of women writing, performing their own material. It was it was that it hadn't it, it was it was still as allowed to be one at a time. And, you know, I, I found that, you know, after I'd sort of done a certain amount of t- TV series of, of a show, my first show I properly did on TV that I was a writer performer in. Absolutely. You know, and there was talk about me doing my own show that that, that it was a kind of at a commissioning level. You know, the, the guys I worked with were pretty gender blind. They were just they just wanted me to be funny. But it was it was when we would hit a sort of commission level, they kind of go, well, we've already got our women's show. or We've already got a, a woman doing a show. And that was it was sort of one at a time. And that was a very it was quite a demoralizing thing to constantly come up against. And so that was from my point of view. But but sort of knowing that Talusha may have experienced some of this you know some of the same issues in in a slightly different way it felt very right that that, that this that this partnership had sort of emerged and, and that and that Talusha was going to be our champion bless you I'll give you the cash after Moena thank you very much that'll be five new pounds <laughs> and do you feel like that roadblock still exists Talusha what do you think from your from, from your perspective I, I think there are always challenges because there are always sort of systems and kind of cultures that are hard to pervade, especially around the creative arts. But I think in terms of kind of those questions around are women funny, which were still being asked in well into the 90s and noughties, I think those sort of things have been dismantled quite a bit by social media. I think some of the funniest, sharpest joke writers I follow are women. Part of it isn't about actually kind of women in comedy. It's partly it's about going, what rich experiences are we bringing into the industry and telling stories about what specific stories have we not heard before that we can kind of bring light to? And I think one of the things I'm really proud of Mawena's work on this is, you know, it's it deals with so many issues around kind of being an outsider entering the world of TV in the 60s, but it's very light on its feet. Um, It's fleet-footed and pacey and very entertaining as a show, whilst also sort of tackling these and digesting these issues. Moira, you've spoken previously about the kind of antagonism around women who are both deemed attractive and funny. To what extent do you think is is that a key part of the the show? It's something that that question is asked, you know, that, that comes up a lot. And I think I mean, it's a it's a it's a it's a very thorny issue, and it's a complicated issue, because it, it it does assume one very narrow definition of attractiveness, and I don't know that that's particularly helpful to sort of 
to perpetuate really but I think I, I, you know I think I think yes there's definitely was a prevailing notion that 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 women couldn't be funny and attractive at the same time. And I think for Nick Hornby, that was one of the motivations for him writing the book. He tells he, t- he talks about Rosamund Pike being cast in, in his film in an education and um and her being saying loving doing that be- because she was funny in that part. And, and she said nobody ever lets me be funny. And I think that that you know set him thinking about about the role of the very of of of, of, of certain of certain women. I mean there's an argument that handsome men, you know, uh, 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 find it complicated. But I think we've sort of seen, you know, they've had a lot of access down from, you know, Cary Grant via, you know, Hugh Grant <laughs> via John Hamm and kind of these kind of filmic army archetypes who who've, who've sort of, you know, who sort of do that, who pull that off. And I think we've seen the same with women, you know, from from Lucille Ball or, you know, I was just reading again about Mari Lloyd, um, who was uh, one of the very first massive, massive comedy stars in this country. She was a musical star, uh, sort of, she was born in like 1880, I think. She was massively famous, massively famous. She was quoted as being one of the three most influential women of Victorian times, uh, uh, alongside Queen Victoria and Florence Nightingale. And she, one of her things was that she was, that she was very appealing. And and I read recently a definition of how she looked, and it's it's very much about how 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 kind of luscious she was and, and about how that how she played that rapport with the with the audience and 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 quite and she was quite you know she she worked she was quite risque. So I think it's it's something that's a very old trope. It's consistently said so there has to be there's definitely a dialogue around it, but it's 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 probably a documentary, you know, it's probably or a PhD. It's 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 complicated. And I think that there's definitely an argument for women in general when a woman stepped, you know, certainly again, when I was starting out and my friends who were stand-ups, you know, there would be a notion that when they stepped on stage, there would be a sort of a free in the audience. And it was just like, is this going to be okay? And and that they would they would quite often do a self-deprecating joke at the start, you know. Um you know, Joe Brand, brilliant, brilliant Joe Brand. My friend used to used to sort of step up and say, you know, move the microphone and say, I better move this, otherwise you won't be able to see me. And it and it was, and even I mean, like Dolly Parton, when she when she comes on says so that it, it, you know, it costs an awful lot of money to look this cheap. It's like, it's that thing of going, I'm gonna say what you think about me before you can say it, because I I know and I'm gonna make it funny and I'm gonna I'm gonna make it way better than you could say it and way better than you can heckle it. And I think that is still something that that a lot of a lot of comedians do male and female but I think it's something that women have really really perfected the art of getting up there and going yes I know and and I'm and I'm and I'm gonna and I'm instantly gonna pull the rug over whatever you think of this I'm gonna I'm gonna say it first and I'm gonna say it funny so I think it's it's as I say it's a very interesting topic and it's a complicated one Um, yeah and I think from the, the from the perspective of our character in this show Barbara Parker it's one of the facets to her, but the other facet is that she's from Blackpool. She's from a working class background. You know, she's kind of earthy and uh, and and sharp witted, rather than sort of a refined joke writer. And she's learning her way through this industry and and trying to find her voice through it. Really, it's about it's sort of a coming of age story in some ways, isn't it? It's about finding your voice finding out who you are through these challenges that she faces. I mean, one of the great things, one of the great democratising things is, is you know, started out as YouTube, people being able to make their own content and, and Twitter, people being able to write their own content, that actually you can you can communicate. You know, there's obviously lots of complicated things about that, but that but, the, but you can you can you can say this is me and this is what I do. 
quicker than anybody could have in the 1960s or the 90s or, or even, you know, sort of early 2000s, really. Yeah, and this Barbara deals with a lot of gatekeepers of all sorts from, you know, in some ways, the limitations on her imagination put on by her Aunt Marie to people like Ted Sargent, who's the head of the network. But she's also encouraged by a lot of people because I think we need sometimes, I think, to kind of bring us out of ourselves and find our funny. We need those supporters. You know, one of the things that I certainly did encounter a lot of complex reactions when I was, you know, when I was starting out and and definitely people didn't accept that I could write. And when I was on TV and I was doing, you know, I was, I was first working, they were like, who writes your material? I was like, no, I write it. And that that took, I mean, years to be, to, to just be something that was part of who I was rather than a fact that had to be stated repeatedly. But but having said that, as I say, the, the, the group that I started out, properly started out with on telly, TV, um, in the show, absolutely, they walking into that writer's room or our room where we where it was just us this cocoon of six of us was fantastic and it was never it was always it's always scary presenting a bit of your material that you've got to read out and perform to you know to your, to your mates but I knew that they would they would I was on I was on a I was on a level playing field and that they just they wanted it to be funny and sometimes they didn't know, like I didn't know if it was going to be funny or not. And we'd stick it in front of an audience and then the audience decides, you know. But I think that support that Talusha is talking about, you know, was definitely there within the comedy community. As I say, meeting, I saw my mate Joe Brown yesterday and we were talking about how we came from very different disciplines in terms of what we were doing. But, you know, I supported each other ever since. It's, it's you know, there is there's a lot of there's a lot of support there, but it's it's quite often not from the places where you need it. Well, it's where you need it to create, but it's not where you need it to kind of get access I think, and I think that's a lot about what Funny Girls about. It's about her being in the writers' room. There, they kind of get it, you know. Dennis, the character of Dennis Mahindra, who's the producer, and um, the characters um, Bill and Tony, played by um, Leo, Bill, and um, Matthew Beard. They they instantly kind of go, "Well, she's a bit odd, and I don't quite know what what she's from." But they're outsiders too. They 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 don't come from backgrounds well Dennis does but you know he's kind of done the he's done the kind of the the, the Oxbridge route into comedy but he, he's an outsider in his own way so I think they recognize in her as sort of a fellow outsider and if she's funny you know that's what writers want if I write something I, you know if someone can make it funny that's oh my god my heart sings you know, as Gemma you know when, when Gemma when the cameras rolled on Gemma on day one of filming it was like hallelujah you know because you go on an instinct um and I knew Gemma was brilliant I, I had no idea how brilliant she was going to be at doing this particular thing and inhabiting the character of Barbara Parker. So it really was a kind of hallelujah moment. And how are you both finding, kind of having done so much work in radio, both of you, how are those two worlds kind of blurring with maybe podcasting as a kind of bridge between the two? I feel really passionate about the audio medium for, uh, you know, for words and for scripts and for language. Having come up through the radio route, we did lots of kind of scripted content, as well as light entertainment and all sorts that involved wordplay and, and and wordsmithery and dramas and comedies and all sorts. And and actually, it was such a good testing ground for writers as well. Um, so I worked with Will Smith uh, for a long time in radio, who Moena, who who writes Slow Horses, and which Moena has been working on for Apple. And when I sort of watch that, I'm just sort of so filled with um, pride. Uh, I'm not not that I'm claiming any part of his success, but that just I could see how hard he worked 
from that radio time. And when you can't see the pictures, you really need that script to be sharp. And so, and I'm, I'm loving the resurgence of audio too. I listen to a lot on podcasting. I think it's a very intimate medium. But then I also love the high-end prestige work of, of companies like Sky. You know, I think one of the joys of this was we were basically making a, a really beautiful high-end prestige drama and smuggling it in through the comedy department. <laughs> one of the things that, that comedy can do is that actually, as well as being funny, it can kind of take you through the highs and lows of someone's journey, uh, as I think this show hopefully does beautifully. Yeah, I agree with agree with Talusha. And 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 radio is, you know, it is it's where I sort of first started properly being able to sort of put my voice out was on 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 in radio. As Talusha says, it really really focuses you on 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 the words. I mean, I you know, I don't find doing podcasts easy. I, you know, I don't feel very comfortable expressing personal opinions, but but I do feel comfortable dramatizing and and creating worlds and you know so i know that for for many many people they've provided massive access and and so yeah genuinely genuinely think it's it's a it's a really good thing really good really great and i listen to lots and you know yeah it's it's um it's a fantastic thing that's sort of that's happened and and you know i did a radio show this week which is um Oh, last week, uh, which is going to be on soon, uh, a, a set, you know, but basically, you know, from Cornish, Cornish writers and Cornish performers. And again, you know, that's something that I'm really passionate about. That's where I'm from. And 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 there's been no real access for, for the, you know, people from that part of the country. And, and a lot of the people that I work with or mentor are, are kind of constantly saying, how do I get from here? How do I get from here to to, to the BBC, you know, or, or to or to Sky or to, where, to wherever? And it's very hard, you know, to, to kind of describe that trajectory so it was really lovely and really gratifying to be working with some you know some new voices and some very established voices as well it's lovely and there's lots of examples of radio plays or radio pieces that have gone on to the screen and i can see moana on in your room on that poster that so miss you already that was based on a, a piece of radio work that you created yeah it was it was to a certain extent yeah it was um I did a, a radio drama called um called goodbye which, which Olivia Coleman played played the lead the lead part in and um yeah it was it was that was really it was it was a fantastic experience with Olivia and John Sim and Alison Steadman and Natasha McAlone and Darren Boyd and that was just a heavenly cast and 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 also you know people will do radio Whereas if you say, you know, <laughs> that, you know, it's because it's because it's so kind of time, uh, you know, it's just a short amount of time and, and and it's very concentrated and focused and, you know, you can work with some incredible people. And yeah, that did then grow and change and, and become the film with Drew Barrymore and Tony Collette. Yeah. <laughs> and Talusha, do you have one eye on radio in your in, in terms of your commissioning needs when you're looking for potential projects? I think a lot of the producers we work with do, and I think they look at kind of all the various mediums where where something has worked well in another medium, whether it's theatre, books, radio, it's sort of, um, I, I think they come with a hope that it reassures the broadcaster that it can have similar success with them. But I think I'm really mindful that adapting something from one medium to another is as difficult as creating something from scratch. I think that adaptation has to be done really carefully and you know something that we were we had a, kept a close eye on with this show 
I think one of the brilliant things about Nick Hornby was that he gave Morwenna free reign to develop this as she wished. Um, I hope I'm right in saying that, Morwenna. <laughs> Amazing. He did, you know, he did, you know, we talked about this again recently that he, I, I gather, was, you know, was keen on me doing it, you know, and came, it came via Pop, Pop Boiler, the, the, the producers, the one of the producing companies, but that Nick had suggested me. And I, and I knew Nick, Nick a little bit, but it was like really fantastic that he, that he said that. Um, and I was always worried, you know, I said to him recently, I, you know, I said, I, I, there's not a day went by on, on set when I wasn't worried. I was, you know, messing it up. I used a slightly stronger word, but, uh, but he, he, but he, but he was like, oh, you can't. He said, the book exists. It exists as its own entity. And that'll, that's still on bookshelves. It's there. It'll, that won't ever go away. So you go off and do what you need, what you want to do with this. And he didn't, he didn't, you know, cast a frowny eye over it. He was only ever supportive and 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 would read it as it went along but yeah he was kind of a dream really i think in terms of you know making it feel really relevant to now making it feel a contemporary piece not that the book doesn't there are themes but i think it's easier to kind of pull them out as a reader and here i think we just really wanted to land them and i think the way it touches on elements of the Me Too movement and, and the way Barbara processes her experiences and making sure, for example, the language feels of the 60s, yet yeah, com completely modern at the same time, which I think Morwen has handled so beautifully. And also giving the characters enough of a, an insight and enough of enough autonomy that we relate to them now, but also putting them very much in their time and, and making them, you know, have the experiences and the opinions of the 1960s. And I think that's also, you know, there's an enormous amount to be said for actually for setting a drama in the 1960s or for, or for, or for you know, translating a drama that was set in the 1960s because, because there are so many things that you didn't, you don't have, you know, so many things that as a writer in something like So Horses, I've got them on mobile phones, I've got anybody can communicate with anybody at any time, somebody can get on a computer and get a bit of information, you know, all of those devices which you sort of rely on now as a drama or comedy writer, you know, if you take all that away and think, Think people really had to want to get in touch with each other in order for that to happen. They really had to kind of make an effort to do various things. And it's quite liberating. It was very liberating in this. At the same time, as there were, you know, a lot of laws in place that meant that were very, very restrictive and, and very restrictive of kind of about around, you know, sexuality and freedom, also and what, what was sayable, what wasn't sayable, censorship. You know, and we sort of bring all those into our world, all of, all of the all of the kind of the, the the liberating aspect of just being able to walk down the road and nobody can get in touch with you or you can, you know, you can sneak off somewhere and nobody knows where you are. At the same time, you know, if you if you you sneak off and do something that isn't legal, you're going to get arrested. You know, I think that, that, that bringing that kind of that excitement, but also the kind of the 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 oppression of that of that time and what you could and couldn't say on television, particularly um, what could and couldn't be represented um, is, is is all part of our world. And it was really fantastic to be able to play play around with that and use it in our stories. So, yeah, obviously very key dramatic elements to the to the show. And you mentioned to Lucia it being a kind of the, incorporating those drama elements into what is still a comedy commission. So in terms of how you are looking to commission in future, you know, what, Sky's done some great comedy dramas to what extent are you looking for more of those or more kind of out and out comedies? I think we're up for all of the flavors on the kind of spectrum of comedy from uh, what our international friends call dramedies uh, to sort of all out joyful laugh shows. But I, th I think in terms of what we're looking to commission, 
we are after shows that feel like they are worth paying for because that's what we sort of ask the Sky customer to do. And in return, we want to give them shows that feel like they have the scale, the on-screen talent and the production values behind them that they deserve. You know, I think I think one of the things around this series that's been really heartwarming is to be able to tell such a female-driven story, but also made by female producers and creators. So, you know, everyone drawing on their own experiences from Gemma to Morwenna to the ladies at Hot Boiler and Rebel Park Productions. And it it's just felt like there's so much we wanted to say about the industry through it, but without being kind of messagey and keeping it an entertaining story. But, you know, we've been doing quite a few female-led stories at Sky recently. We've got Dreamland coming up with Lily Allen and Freema Agiman, which is co-written by uh, a, a, an amazing team of female writers led by Sharon Horgan and Clelia Mountford at Merman. And then we've got Smothered coming up, which is a, a young rom-com written by the fantastic Monica Heisey, um, oh. a Canadian writer who's written on Schitt's Creek and Working Moms. And, uh, you know, recently had Sheridan Smith in Rosie Malloy Gives Up Everything, which is just such a, she's an incredible comedy and drama performer. And again, written by Susan Nixon and produced by a female-led team at Hartswood Films. So I think kind of one of the really brilliant things for me in the last sort of year or so at Sky is, is not only telling stories of women on screen, but having these brilliant, powerful producers and, and creators that are female-led behind all of these shows. Well said. Hurrah. <laughs> Morwenna, so Slow Horses has been renewed for, I think, third and fourth season. So is that taking up kind of more all your time at the moment or what other projects have you got going on it's there's i've got yeah i've got got a few things going on but i was going to say you know that's that is a very luxurious position to be in um and and it's and it's increasingly rare in in television that you know networks are able to commission ahead and it's a you know great mark of confidence and also you know economically that they are they're able to do that but you know because comedy traditionally gets re- really lands in a second season and uh, or comedy and, and, and many things actually but but I think specifically something where you're asking people to kind of engage with with characters through through a sort of a comic lens and that it's very rare that that ever you know that that, that ever happens that you sort of you sort of know you've got that that breathing space coming up in a way that that perhaps you sort of did know you know previously so I think that's you know that's been a very fortunate thing with with Apple. But I do have yes, I do have other things on on the on the go, which which I better not talk about, basically. <laughs> but yes, yeah, some nice and very fun things, yeah. UK-based Kindle Entertainment is behind a string of young adult and family dramas including Ivy and Bean for Netflix, The A-List for the BBC and Kiss Me First for Channel 4 and Netflix. The company became part of Banerjee Group's Kids and Family division six months ago and founder and managing director Melanie Stokes spoke to Karolina Kaminska about this, how definitions of young adult drama are changing, the growing need for feel-good programming and why she believes apocalyptic HBO drama The Last of Us actually falls into this category. So to start with then, Kindle Entertainment was acquired by Banerjee uh, Kids and Family last year. How has that integration gone and, 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 and why did that acquisition make sense for you? So I think the, the, there's a number of factors in that. Um, Banerjee has a really fantastic ethos. It has a sort of a very entrepreneurial ethos. 
And what I really like about it is that you kind of get the best of both worlds. You you retain your independent um, editorial passion and strategy, but then you've got the support of all sorts of things, you know, that with Indies you can get very lost in the, the business side, the, the business deals, the finance, um, but even broader than that, the, 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 the profile of the company and the networks that Banerjee bring, because of them being a global company, it just opens up your, the doors and re- to, to new relationships. And I think also I like the fact that going back to the the ethos question, the kind of ethos of the company is that they they're very fleet of foot, and the market is changing so rapidly all the time at the moment that you need a company that can kind of keep abreast with that. And I feel like Banerjee has kind of got that. Um, ability to be fleet of foot as well so it feels like a very dynamic partnership and um, Kindle is completely female led so Mm. tell me about the decision around that I think it's it's um, as much by accident as by design that you end up um, I think with with a with a boutique production uh, company like ours you know that's specializing in premium drama and four quad drama it's the only thing you have to distinguish you from others is your taste because otherwise you're all competing for the same bit of the schedule so for instance if we're talking to stars who are looking for female-led pieces that that really makes sense but you know you might be talking to Netflix and they might say actually we want something that is a is, is a male-driven piece well you've got, you've got to have a, you've, you have to have a unique USP um, and so I guess that the people that I editorially have bonded with have been women and then we've ended up working together and creating a partnership so it's very exciting and um, I, I guess it's about the passion and the and the love of, of the sharing those ideas and those ambitions together it's it is it is like a work marriage really does more need to be done to get more female voices heard in the in the TV industry well, I think there's been massive improvement, but you know, I thought like the appointment of Lindsay Salt to run BBC Drama. I mean, Polly was there briefly, but it's essentially been quite a male space for quite some time. It's really exciting to have a young mother in that role. She's got young kids, and we had a meeting with her the other week, and I just thought, you know, wow, this is really the combination of her being a mother and also her commercial experience of working at Sky and Netflix. I think she's really good news for the industry, good news for the BBC and good news for us. So I think and partly being a mother with young children is actually quite specific, I think. You mentioned a focus on four-quad drama um, with a particular focus on, on YA, is that right? Or, mm, that I think that's even shifting again. <laughs> so I think four-quad... Some people don't really understand what four quad is, and it's quite an. In, in fact, we we're talking about with Lindsay about this very thing about when she was at Netflix. You know, what is a four quad show? I think four quads. Essentially, it's an American term, and it's the four quadrants of the audience, which basically means men and women over twenty-five, under twenty-five. So, a show that we've made that's four quad would be Treasure Island, because that would be watched by individual ad- adults as well as families. Whereas, Four Kids in It is a family show. It's 
kids at the heart of it and kids are in the driving seat. But that doesn't mean that family... <laughs> Four quad shows can also have kids in them. So, like, Stranger Things is a really good example. So I think it's about the tone and the attitude of the show. I think there are far more opportunities now for Four Quad than there are for Family and YA, which absolutely we are still developing. But there's a, there are more homes for Four Quad because it's just got that wider scope. So that's really where the, our main focus is now, is on Four Quad. Okay, that's quite interesting. Um, but honing in then on on that YA audience, mm. which, you know, can be quite yeah. elusive. I, yeah, because it's such a... If you think about YA, right, you shows that we've made so we've made the a-list which is a soft ya show what you what the americans would call clean teen so you know you might have a kiss but you certainly don't see um sex whereas kiss me first which we also did for channel 4 on netflix is a much older more like euphoria now the characters are exactly the same age but this so it is about attitudes so you get soft YA, pretty little liars, and then you get much edgier YA. Finding the right homes for those pieces, I mean, again, going back to the BBC, you know, BBC Three is the natural home for YA. Um, those coming-of-age stories, every writer in the industry has a coming-of-age story. It's like every first novel is a coming-of-age story. So it's really competitive, that space. And finding an original take on a coming-of-age story, because essentially that's what YA is. It's your first kiss, your first best friend, your first... It's, you know, it's your first experience of being a young adult. It's incredibly hard to find an original take into that space so I think you have to tread very carefully and make sure so our approach is in very bespoke we only have like one or two YA projects at any one time because we have to really believe that there's a, that, that those are stories that haven't yet been told that need to be told there's a lot of quite generic coming of age stories out there so I think you just have to be it's, it's, it's tough, it's really competitive. It's interesting that you say it's competitive. Yeah. Um, a lot of people say that the YA demographic is very underserved, so do you feel that? I mean, yes, I think it is underserved. Um, I mean, I think Netflix have done a fantastic job at serving that audience, and, and it's kind of changed, it's been a bit of a game changer for the traditional broadcasters. But I mean, if you look at, if you look at ITV, you and me, which is a you know a three-part rom-com with a very young cast with Jessica Barden and, and the lovely guy Jack from Industry. Industry is another very good example, I think, of a really interesting YA show. YA stroke four quadrant, I would say, because it's got those older characters too and everyone had a job for the first time. So I think I think the the edgier stuff, no. I think, you know, to take industry or take the, the, the Channel 4 pieces, there, there is absolutely a fantastic, thriving YA for that older, edgier, the Kiss Me First that we did. Where it's underserved is in the softer, where Waterloo Road and the soaps would traditionally have served that audience. You know, the, the 11 to 15-year-olds, I think that that particular, so heart Heartstopper kind of you know was a breakout hit but there are very few shows like that so our show the a-list there's a handful of them 
And I think that's that is an audience that isn't served. And I think the trouble is that audience is so transitory. It's quite an elusive audience to to get hold of. If you get it right, you get younger and older. So what we found with the A-list was that they were watching it as young as eight, but also like kids at university. It was a big hit in Brazil because it had a big kind of um, really kind of rather camp high story turnover with big cliffhangers etc so it was also watched by older an an older demo who found it quite comforting and I think for them it was quite nostalgic because I think there is something about that softer YA that is a especially in the current climate where it's kind of there's something quite reassuring about it I think it would be lovely if we had more of those shows and more openings that they're, that you're right there are very few openings for shows like that there, there seem to be some quite big blurred lines around what the actual age range is for yeah. YA so how do you define that that demographic I mean I think that you've got the clean teen demo which would mean that you could have big mystery and you can have, you know, bad things can happen, kids can disappear and you can try and find out whether there can be a big crime, but it can't have sex and nudity uh, and bad language and drugs. So that would be what I would call clean teen stroke soft YA, which would be, I would say, 8 to 14 to 15. That That's its broadest audience. Probably the sweet spot of that is a 13-year-old. When my daughter was 13, Pretty Little Liars was absolutely, that's where she was, and Waterloo Road. And they're both melodrama, actually. There's this kind of, this high-octane story turnover that I think as a young, you, you want that intensity of story. So... I think that, and then, and then, and then something like Skins, you know, Brian Elsie's Skins and Kiss Me First, which he also wrote for us, probably starts about 14 and it's a bit transgressive and you shouldn't really be watching it, but it's what you want to do when your parents don't know. But probably the sweet spot of that show would be 18, but you, you would get as young as 14 watching it all the way up to 30. If you do it right, because again you get that you get that nostalgia. I think both of them have a nostalgia factor for the older audience, as do first novels, the coming of age first novel. That we we I think we all kind of um, can remember those first experiences. So there's something very pleasing about it. But the edgier stuff probably less so. You know, it's probably less nostalgic. <laughs> you might not be, want to be reminded of some of the more. <laughs> you know, bleak aspects of adolescence. Um, I mean, Euphoria. Although interesting, I read a review of Euphoria, and she said she she was a journalist in her forties. A TV, I can't remember which TV critic it was, and she said it was the only thing she was watching because she thought it was so authentic. She felt she had an insight to this new generation who do feel different. I think because of the birth of the internet and, and the digital world we now live in, they they do feel like a different. Your generation do feel different, but. It also had enough of those kind of those those points where we can all remember. We all can remember those difficult first time you break up with somebody. Okay, so um, do you do you want to talk about a couple a couple of the shows on your slate? The thing is, they're in really early stages of conversations. With all I can say is, we're, we're chasing really big IP, which is very exciting, and it's when we're very much taking a local to global approach. So we're finding those pieces of IP that really both speak to the UK audience, but 
also um, the global audience because we know that we need shows that can get funding from the UK and elsewhere. That's the only way to get a premium drama funded, uh, either by a streamer or as a co-pro. So a bit of a watch this space yeah. situation. Yeah, we've got some very exciting things coming up. Um, what are other companies' goals and ambitions for the next couple of years? Um, we would like to be. We would like to be making the next The A-List, our next version of that, our next sort of returning softer YA show, um, and that can be on any number of platforms um, that's returning, uh, and that makes young people, it becomes their show, the show that they take to their hearts and uh, defines their early teen years. Um, I'd like to have a couple of family movies. We've got a really exciting family franchise of movies based on a piece of um, IP that I'd love to make those. Um, so we're in conversation about that at the moment. So we're looking really at two to three things a year that would be, you know, a single and, and a one or two returning series. That's the target, really. What are the biggest trends that you're seeing in the sector at the moment? Well, I mean, I think... I think there is a real desire for feel good. I think I think that the market is really responding to the uncertainty that we're experiencing in the world right now. Um, so there's there's a, a desire for, for things that feel that we can escape from the kind of the anxiety of, of the world that we live in. And yet, <laughs> to now massively contradict myself. I thought what was really interesting that the, the current hit show, um, uh, The Last of Us, that although it's a really bleak dystopian world, there's actually something really wish-fulfilling about it, perversely, because actually what you have is two people who are really bonded together and will do anything for each other. They will kill for each other. Well, actually, that's a very wish-fulfilling um, dynamic. So although you're in a, a Western, essentially, a shootout, I mean, obviously it's based on the game, and it's a, there's a lot of violence, I think perversely, it's actually, or conversely, it's actually quite a wish-fulfilling, and dare I say, feel-good piece, because because he, she heals him, sorry, spoiler, and, and they save each other's life. And I think when you're watching, you're thinking, wow, I want to be in a relationship where this person is willing to die for me. So, so I think you actually can feel good can mean a number of things, I think. And I think when you, when you watch that and you realise that it was a, a lot, lot worse than what we went through with, yes. with COVID. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And it's like, wow, would I, if I was in that situation, exactly. I mean, that's what they say about Second World War movies, that, that, that there's the what-if factor. Would I have been as brave as that person? Would I have saved a little Jewish child and risked my own family's life to save that Jewish child? There is something about a what-if, and I guess, yeah, because of COVID being so recent in our minds, because that, sh that game was pre-COVID, but very interesting to release it post-COVID as a drama series because yeah we're much more leaning in I thought that episode three was really interesting as well that the, 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 the um, millennials and the, you're a millennial aren't you um, that got so excited by it and I think it's because it was about healing America I think this whole thing about the terrible split in America between the Republicans and the Democrats and the feeling that 
that there's this kind of very polarised world. Well, America feels very polarised, more than any other country, I think. I thought that episode was really fascinating that actually it was, it was, it was like an offering. What if, what if an American, a Republican and a Democrat fell in love and, and had this kind of really beautiful romance? That was really interesting how the, the Twitter went mad for it, didn't they? Um, so I think, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So I say feel good, but I think that's quite a nuance. What do we mean by feel good? Yeah, no, that's that's a that's a really interesting point actually. Um, focusing on 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 the, the gaming aspect, then, do you think that we're going to see more adaptations of games? Well, we, yeah, I mean, Kiss Me First was really inspired by 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 that. In fact, the, the Last of Us was our big inspiration, actually. Um, I would love to do that, but it's. I mean, you have to kind of team up with the 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 uh, the game <laughs> IP owner, um, and you know, I mean, there's there's huge huge fantastic story potential there that could be mined I'm sure much more um, much more than it is being actually yeah I'd love that okay um, and what are the main challenges and opportunities that you're experiencing at the business at the moment but also in, in the wider industry you know we're in this economic crisis at the moment so sort of biggest challenge and challenges yeah, I think it is really I mean I have been here before I mean that's the thing they say isn't it that, um, that if you've been in the industry that's one of the benefits of being older is that you've survived it before we have been here before so you know in 2008 there was a massive um, crash and think everyone was like oh my god what's going to happen next so the, the money there's, there are cycles a kind of boom and bust and we've been through a boom haven't we with, with the birth of all of the with all of the streamers and now there's a bit of a they've hit a plateau and there's kind of a, a retreat and, and Wall Street are obviously kind of um, calling the shots at the moment so I think what you have to do, that's what is being an entrepreneurial producer, is that you have to find new ways of funding your show. Um, and that's, all, in a way, has always been like that. There was this brief moment where there just seemed to be, the industry was awash with money when the streamers first launched. Um, but that was just... That was never going to last, you know. And maybe it's good for producers, actually, because it means that we can maybe hold on to more of our rights um, because we're being co-pro negotiations. So I don't think it's all, all bad. It's just different, I think any other kind of big opportunities at the moment with you know changes with streaming with fast channels and stuff like that well the the, 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 the one that i'm sort of interested in is the kind of you know the the, the free v and the free form and the kind of the ad the ad um based offerings i think that that feels like a really new opportunity i mean it also feels like back to itv debt you know it's, it's interesting isn't it that ads are in ads are out ads are in again because um, young people don't want to pay for stuff right so someone's got to pay for it um so i think that there are we're definitely trying to work out how to make friends with places like free fee and freeform because again they do they do serve that younger that younger softer ya audience you know i was talking to a canadian producer recently about their version of black beauty it's really interesting they've taken that piece of ip and turned it into a contemporary four quad show so I think yeah, there are some really great opportunities there as well. It's just you have to be, you have to really know 
what each of those platforms, their distinct, what they distinctly are looking for. You can't. It's not a one one fits all. So you your 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 projects have to kind of. You can't make them for everyone. You have to have some very focused homes in mind that you're targeting. Yeah. I think that's really key, actually. Siddharth Jain got into the film and TV business after selling his Bollywood memorabilia online business to eBay at the height of the dot-com boom. Working first as a producer both in Los Angeles and India, he later joined the launch team for Indian OTT platform Hotstar. In 2018, he established leading Indian book-to-screen adaptation specialist The Story Inc. and in 2021 set up film and TV development and production company House of Talkies, whose first series, Trial by Fire, was released by Netflix earlier this year. Jane spoke to Michael Picard at Series Mania in Lille, France last week about the show, the tragic story behind it and his plans for what comes next. This is uh, Sir Jane Siddharth and uh, I'm a producer at House of Talkies but largely I've been running a story company since the last five years called The Story Inc. And uh, The Story Inc. basically is a, is a company that solves the story problem for producers in India. And in the last five years we've sold more than 200 book rights about 50 plus production houses and it's been a great uh, great journey and prior to that I you know was part of the the team that set up Hotstar in 2015 uh, which is now the largest platform in India mm-hmm. and before that I worked across studios I should run my own script development company which is the first of its kind in Bollywood like about a decade ago and prior to that I sold a dot-com company which gave me enough money to move to Los Angeles for a bit and I worked on a, believe it or not, a five-country co-production with Salman Khan and an American uh, director, American actress, about 15 years ago, 17 years ago, just too early for its time. But that was kind of my introduction into the business and uh, great learning on how development happens in all of Los Angeles. And then moving to India was a culture shock for me. But uh, it's been fun, it's been a great journey and I'm really excited with Trial by Fire because that's been the first kind of uh, producing that I've done, you know, like after a decade. Mm-hmm. And I felt that, you know, Bollywood was getting too cliched, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Yeah. I mean, if I can use the word Bollywood, yeah, you can. a lot of people don't <laughs> <laughs> like the term. I mean, it's just easier. And, uh, you know, I feel uh, with streaming, it's really uh, open doors yeah. for storytellers like me who want to tell different and varied stories, dive deeper, so the episodic format is exciting. And yeah, so now, you know, with House of Talkies, the goal is to really widen that, uh, uh, the door, mm-hmm. the opportunity that we have. Yeah. And we've got an exciting slate which we can talk about later. Yeah. I mean, but just going back over your career, you've yeah. kind of been at the forefront of how India has emerged, I guess, traditionally from a film uh, culture yeah. into more TV that, you know, and, and certainly, become more international as far as perhaps Western audiences are concerned with Trial right. by Fire, you know, the latest yeah. example of a, a Netflix series that we can watch around the world. I mean, exactly. how have you seen the industry, the TV industry in particular, kind of emerge and, and develop and, and now, you know, become a, glo- you know, make pr- productions for a global audience? Right. So, you know, if you see traditionally in India, uh, the talent that has worked in the television industry and the film industry were like two different buckets. Mm. Like in the US, you still had HBO and Disney they were doing very high quality you know, television. In India, it was largely the daily soap, you know, that was television. And nothing premium has been happening. 
and uh, the last 15 years if you see indian television was largely daily soaps and then a lot of you know reality shows like big brother and all those remakes were happening and uh, film was kind of a very very different world in itself and that too was broken between the bollywood hindi and then the south indian industry which is very strong and equally robust uh, so it was kind of uh, you know stuck in a in two different buckets but with streaming uh, they started overlapping mm-hmm. right and then premium uh, the studios very quickly realized especially the american studios streamers in india when they started that you want to make episodic content but you need to go and attract the film talent in india to look at episodic and uh, have the lens of working for a fixed fee because in the movie business you are used to upside and royalties and profit shares but with streaming commission that's gone out of the door and uh, the premium film guys were not sure whether they can do episodic so i think uh, in the last 5 years there's been this huge learning curve in india where uh, film talent has found a way to work around you know episodic series premium like prashant nair i mean he, uh, he would never do a daily soap in india right <laughs> but now he can do episodic premium content which frees him as a creator as a producer gives me access to film talent which i have worked with or i can relate with and the aesthetic now can be brought to television so you know in india we still call daily soap television we don't call episodic premium on streaming in television mm-hmm. like in the us so it's kind of you know it's a it's a great uh, melting pot now and i think this melting pot was required which sort of came in with streaming and now creators like prashant can take indian stories uh, you know globe to global audiences and maybe to global production houses and maybe collaborate with uh, showrunners from the west yeah and prashant that you mentioned is the the showrunner on trial by fire which is a netflix original um, i mean just basically introduce us to that story because it's right. based on a, a quite a tragic true story that in some certain aspects is still ongoing today so just maybe tell us a bit about that well you know for me it's a very personal story because i met the parents about 5 years ago and i thought i'll just sell the rights to another production house because i was still at that time running the story inc house talkies was still very nascent and i you know i almost sold the rights to another bollywood producer and then you know after a long meeting with the parents i realized that this is a very responsible story uh their journey of fighting for justice for about 25 years uh, on behalf of all the families of all the victims was their life and we could not and i could not just sell the story to somebody and they insisted that they'll only part with the rights if i produce and i take charge of the you know of uh, the fate of that story for screen so you know that kind of you know that their journey inspired me to get back to producing for a year i almost uh, i was trying to keep i kept thinking of the right director for this the right show and the right writer uh i knew prashant because like a decade ago he had written a vampire script for me and uh, it's a very different project yes yeah, a different <laughs> project but you know his aesthetic something you know which i always admired and i loved that he chose his stories well mm. he waited he was patient and he didn't want to just do anything and everything at that time he was busy shooting made in heaven and then once that show got over i reached out to him and asked him you know would you like to read a st- story that i have and he instantly connected with it and you know it, the journey of the parents is so emotional yet it needs to be told in a very uh, in a way that people also understand the problem in the system mm-hmm. 
because you know the systemic issues in India that we face, and we still face even after 26 years. So, for me, uh, the project was something of a of a life changing experience for me because I actually felt uh, the whole pain of the parents in these four five years yeah. while making the show with Prashant, and it's been a great journey I think for both of us and. Uh, Especially for the parents, because you know, after the Netflix show, after Netflix came on board, and I must say, uh, full credit to the Netflix team, that you know, you know, I met Monica with the story, and in five minutes she said, "Let's do this," mm -hmm. and they've uh, been a great support on the show. They let Prashant make the show that he wanted to make, mm -hmm. and you know, it's usually we hear horror stories of studios, right? But yeah. you know, it was amazing working with the Netflix team, amazing working with the entire crew, yeah. and the parents on whose life the story is. They have gotten so much of love and support from audiences across the world, and they're all discovering the show every day as we speak, and they are flooded with uh, you know positive responses. And I think this will also hasten their quest for justice because now I think there is a people have forgotten about the incident, people move on in life, and I think the whole judiciary in India has taken note of what's been happening. Mm -hmm. While they know these things, it comes back, you know, it comes back in their area of, you know, current uh, issues. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the biggest, I think, takeaway for me from the show is that I think justice will be smoother and faster for them. I guess the tragedy at the centre of the story is this, you know, cinema fire that took yes. a number of lives, including the two boys of, of the two parents you've referred to, and, and they wrote a book about right. the issue and their ongoing legal battle. I mean, it's an interesting structure that you have for the series in terms of it's set after the tragedy with flashbacks right. and then in the final episode you actually go and recreate the fire. I mean what were your conversations about how you would just tell this story, the timeline and, and that final decision to actually right. recreate the tragedy itself? Exactly. So I think, uh, you know, I'll give full credit to Prashant and Kevin for this. Mm. Uh, they really thought very hard because we were actually uh, we spent a couple of months figuring how will this, how will you tell this story? Because it's a pretty simple story. Yeah. It can't be a courtroom drama that we go to court every day for 25 years. Yeah. We can't focus on just the conversation of the couple. So it needed a you know, structure that kept the audience hooked onto yeah. uh, the story and not drop off after the first, second, third episode. Mm -hmm. So I think the format of following the story A of the couple mm -hmm. that's fighting for justice, the parents, and uh, the plot B of seeing different different people who were, you know, affected in different ways, including people who were accused, and the people who were the, you know, the families of the victims, uh, seeing their stories emerge and still wait to see how they'll all conclude and converge at the end. I think was a great uh, you know, structure that Prashant and Kevin came up with, and I think once we found that structure, we had the confidence that we can tell this as a series, mm -hmm. because we were actually also maybe contemplating at some point will this work as a movie, maybe. It's, 90 minutes is enough for a film, yeah. you know, for this story. But we realize, you know, this story needs more mm -hmm. because you have to feel the pain. You have to feel the frustration. Yeah. And you need to spend a couple of hours with them in their world to really, uh, you know, connect with the story. And that feeling will linger for years, right? Yeah. We may forget the scenes and the plot, but how we felt, you know. So that, I think, structure was really the the point at which we were confident that, you know, this sh you know, the show will work with audiences. Yeah, 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 yeah. definitely. And, and, and we're speaking at Series Mania, and, and this week there was a panel um, discussing the responsibility that creators have on their shoulders when approaching stories like this and, and how they 
how they carry that weight through the production, the, the research. I mean, how did you feel, you know, in terms of the responsibility you had to the parents, to the victims and their families, and, and I guess, you know, the way to tell that in the right way? So this actually, uh, being, being a responsible storyteller, was the most important thing for me in this project. Mm. I took a year to make sure that we find the right guy in Prashant. And you know, uh, for me, this project, if you look at the usual Indian content, this is great material for them to go like over the top, make it very jingoistic, make it overtly like emotional, have these really you know cringy dialogues in Hindi, and just make it like a typical Bollywood film. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to go in that direction for sure. So, you know, the whole responsible bit kind of was also, the other thing was the legality, right? Because the case is still in the court. Uh, there's still appeals happening. So we had to make sure that while we tell the story of the parents, we do our research well to make sure we are not coming out with a biased view. We had to stick to the facts. We had to make sure that the facts are verified by the courts. And we are not just blaming the answers, uh, you know, without doing our homework. Mm -hmm. So we went with the judgment of the courts, the documents of the courts, uh, thousands of pages of material, uh, several interviews. We met, I and Prashant personally met with a bunch of the families of the victims. We met the lawyers, their lawyers, people who've been with the case for 20 years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that also put a lot of emotional and moral pressure on us to make sure that we do the right thing. And we... Uh, you know, don't come out as biased, but be responsible you know, with the story. So it was the most difficult thing to do. And it was also, uh, you know, we had to uh, consistently have that thought of responsibility right through the whole crew mm -hmm. and the cast of the show. Mm -hmm. So right from the actors to the HODs to everybody on the set was very emotional with the story because we made sure that they understood why we are telling the story, how we want to tell the story. and. The, the sense of being responsible should be with every person who was part of the casting crew. Mm -hmm. So we made sure that kind of trickled down, and I think that shows in the outcome. Yeah, definitely. And, and so Trial by Fire is the first uh, production from House of Talkies. I mean, what can you tell us about your development slate, what's coming next into production? So, you know, uh, you know because I run the story and we're so close to books, in the last two years, uh, you know, we've optioned more than uh, 30 books. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, I was actually waiting for Trial of Fire to come out first. Mm -hmm. So we spent two years developing a slate of uh, varied uh, projects and genres. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say about 80% is focused on very local Indian content. But 20% is, I think, focused more on international stories that we can take outside India. And uh, what we also do at House of Talk is we also have our own team of writers. We've got about 15 staff writers. Yeah, and uh, we work with another 15, 20 freelance writers. Mm -hmm. So we've got an ecosystem of about you know, 30 odd writers. And we work with very, uh, what we do as a production house now, we develop all the material, the Bible, the pilot episodes, a film script, and then we go to a director, mm -hmm. get the right director on board, package it, and then go to the platform. So we've got a few things. Uh, if you know uh, this amazing filmmaker, her name is Lena Yadav. She made a movie called Parched that premiered at Toronto. She also made a series for Netflix, House of Secrets, which was a pretty successful, uh, you know, docudrama. Uh, she's directing a film and a series for us. 
We are working with Prashant Nairo's next show, the support group. So that we're setting up with the platform. We've signed a multi-series uh, <clears throat> and film deal with another leading platform that I can't name right now. <laughs> so we've got a, uh, this year we're putting about four uh, projects in production. Okay. And hopefully every year we'll do about three to four projects in production. Yeah. We recently have started work on this international series just based on this book called The Startup Wife. It's uh, written by a UK-based author, Bangladeshi origin UK-based author, Taimima Anam. And uh, it's a story of a brown woman in Silicon Valley. Okay. So that's a very international project. Mm -hmm. So for that one, you know, we will be packaging that, uh, you know, taking the help of a bunch of agencies from LA who set it up as an international series, as a US series right. set in the US. Mm -hmm. And uh, in fact, uh, since we are series mania, last year I came to series mania and I heard this pitch from the writer's lab of this girl who's from Pakistan, Canadian girl. And uh, she had this amazing project based on a Pakistani serial killer. Mm -hmm. So we are also producing that one as an international series out of Pakistan from Series Mania. Mm -hmm. So we've got a good slate about, I think, uh, six to seven projects for the international market and another ten odd for the domestic market. Right. And, and you know, when you do speak to international partners, I mean, yeah. how are you working with them? How are you putting co-productions together? What, you know, what kind of role do you like to play in those series that maybe aren't set in India or, or in, uh, you know, in Asia? So I think what you know we bring to the table are unique stories, mm -hmm. which have some you know Asian Indian element, but are uh, you know more uh, more palatable to a wider audience. Mm -hmm. And what we bring to the table also is the story, and also I think the the ability to do a lot of like initial development mm -hmm. and research because we have a large team in Bombay, yeah. and we do that I think really well. We can pick some amazing books which a usual production house won't have access to. Mm -hmm. We also pick up a lot of, you know, uh, like unpublished books, mm -hmm. right? So it gives us that edge. And the fact that I think uh, we've got great uh, relationships with all the three top streaming platforms, the global platforms. Mm -hmm. So uh, instead of doing a lot of co-production, which takes a lot of time, mm -hmm. uh, we're working very closely with our offices in Los Angeles and London to take these projects straight to streaming, mm -hmm. films and series, which are international. So uh, we're working very closely with the top three streaming platforms out of Mumbai, London and Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And whichever story works for whichever market, we then package the talent accordingly. Mm -hmm. So I think that puts us in a very unique uh, in a position yeah. and opportunity this year. Yeah. And, and I guess packaging is a, is a very traditional element of film. But I mean, do you yeah. see that more now in TV, that packaging and, and getting the director and the, the A-lister on board at an early stage is, mm -hmm. is critical now to getting that project up and Absol running? Absolutely, because you know, I come from film background. Mm -hmm. And like I said, in India, television was very different, daily soap and there was the film. So in film, we are used to developing and packaging mm -hmm. and then going to financing. So that's exactly the model we are, you know, uh, that you're following here. And it's pretty cool because I think uh, Trial of Fire has opened doors for us, mm -hmm. where now, studios and talent they can see the the aesthetic that we like that i like and you know the kind of stories we can tell the way we can tell mm -hmm. and uh, so i think uh, it's become much easier uh, thankfully now yeah. <laughs> earlier it was a bit more struggle to explain to people what's good writing and what's good aesthetic mm -hmm. but i think now this is a good example of you know what we can do that's all for this episode, but you can hear more discussion by tuning in to our C21 FM internet radio station, where you'll find new interviews airing from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. Listener.